Take your Bible, turn to Matthew chapter 1. Yes, I do know how to manage a calendar. Yes, I know it's not December. Yes, we have been singing what we would call Christmas carols. uh, And largely because we're obviously in the birth narrative of Christ. Matthew chapter 1, starting in verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold... An angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your word and that you have spoken. And now we ask that you would give life and light to our minds that we would understand and our hearts that we would believe. Reorder our desires, we ask for Christ's sake. Amen. Simple question, I'm going to assume the answer is probably no, but have you you ever spent any time thinking about the process of trusting someone? The process of trusting. Well, if you've ever been betrayed, I guess you've probably thought about that kind of in the the restoration side of it. But the part I'm actually talking about is, is those kind of instantaneous snap judgments. You know, where you can walk into a store and the salesperson comes to talk to you and you know instantly, yes, I like this person, or no, I don't. Yes, I'm going to trust this person, or you know what, I'm not going to trust them at all. If you you kind of think about that process, I, I suspect that all of us would have very different kind of maybe features or attributes that would contribute to that. Some people in the room, again, uh, recognize them raised in the South, some of us, that might think a nice person is more trustworthy. Oh, that person's nice. They're worth listening to. Some might actually, might be the exact opposite. Oh, they're nice. They probably have no idea what they're talking about. That's why they're so nice. Oh, that person's abrupt. They're, They're just to the point. They're direct. They must know what they're talking about. It's actually a really interesting exercise to kind of pause and think. It's also one of those areas where it can actually show kind of your, your own listener's bias. You know, you can pause and think about maybe you, you listen to one gender and not the other. 
That's a problem, right? That's a big time problem. Maybe you listen to one kind of person and another. That's actually another kind of problem. The interesting thing, I suspect that at its core, all of us are going to say at some point, I'm willing to listen to that person. I'm willing to trust that person because they know more than I do. At some point, have you ever had to interact with a salesperson? That's the worst kind of salesperson, the one that knows less than you, where you're like, oh, just stop this waste of time. The challenge that Matthew would have had in some fashion of of writing for the Jews, this gospel being written to the Jews, is that they're going to know the Old Testament in some fashion. They were familiar with it. Now, again, by this point, certainly um, Bible literacy was lower than it had been in other seasons and other spells, but higher than other times as well. Um, They would have had an idea of what the Messiah was supposed to be. They had had an idea of what the anointed one of God, the redeemer of God, was supposed to look like. Now, the problem throughout all of the Gospels is that their idea is not entirely accurate. In some areas, they've got it spot on right. This is the one who is God's king, who will reign forever. They get that right. (laughs) That his reign is going to be fully captured right now. They get that wrong. And that's why they're all like... Kill Rome, kill Rome, kill Rome. You're ready for them to start you know, lopping ears off and things like that. And that's not how it works. They expect him to be coming in might and power and glory and to destroy all of his enemies. And Jesus will do that at the second coming, but that's not how he shows up at the first. And so Matthew is writing to a people group that's going to have in some kind of really deep-seated way an information gap between what they've expected the Messiah to be and what he actually is. And in many ways, I love that that's how I would suggest most Americans are with the Lord Jesus. We have some sort of kind of cultural understanding of of who Christ is. Perhaps his name is one of the first curse words that we learned in the home or on television. Perhaps we have been taught that he's just a good man or he's you know, the best of men or the smartest of men, which he was all of those things. Not only those things, but all of them. So when it comes time to evaluate the scriptures, one of the great challenges that I think really the American church, this is my concern for us. I talked about this last week is learning to interact with the scriptures in a way that we genuinely place ourselves beneath what the Bible says. That in so much as we're able, we try to submit ourselves to the text in real humility and real honesty and not just go off of the the Sunday school knowledge that we learned 30 years ago. Because while for some of these portions, the the application might not be any different, some of them I suspect actually it's going to demand a whole lot more from us, which is why we don't really want to listen. 
This section of Matthew, these verses, Matthew frames out this interaction, the arrival of Jesus Christ in, in a way is establishing his trustworthiness to his audience by saying, look, I know what I'm talking about. This is the Christ and he's bigger and better and greater than you could have ever imagined. If you remember from last week, he's already laid out the genealogy of Joseph. Now, this genealogy is significant for a number of reasons. One is it's the royal genealogy. This is the genealogy of the king of of Judah, but it's also, interestingly, not Jesus, technically. It's his stepfather. This is not the one that he shares DNA with until his mother's line goes back. But it shows the rightful king is going to be the one who is Joseph's heir, which Jesus becomes. And now in these uh, brief verses here, eight verses or so that we're going to look at, we're going to see that Matthew kind of, for the reader, intentionally puts out there that this person, this one who shows up, this new king of Judah, is spectacular and unique in four specific ways. Four specific ways that he's this unique figure in world history. As you might guess, almost all of these ways uh, give problems to people as they interact because it's a little bit, well, it requires faith. The first verse frames it out. It was hinted at in the previous genealogy where uh, son of father of father of father of father of father of then in verse 16 where it goes to actually talk about uh, Joseph's relationship with Jesus and it's not hinted that he's the father of Jesus Jesus is just explained as the son of Mary, but not the son of Joseph. Verse 18 takes what was hinted at and makes it clear. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ, the conception really, took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, now again, betrothal then was a little bit more significant uh, than it is now. Betrothal then is like engagement, except way more formal. Uh, It could last to, if the girl had hit puberty and was of marriable age, it could last up to a year. Uh, If she was not yet of age, it could last for indefinitely until she was ready to marry. Uh, During that time, uh, man and woman were called husband and wife. Those were the terms that were applied to them, but they were not yet allowed to uh, make house or be intimate Either of those words are very explicitly stated throughout Jewish literature and even New Testament literature. They couldn't live together, and they couldn't act like they were living together, if you know what I'm saying. Here, same situation. Mary is betrothed to Joseph. They would have been called husband and wife. In fact, you find out here in just a moment that if something happens to break it up, you actually had to file for divorce because you were legally bound together but not yet able to be one. Matthew clarifies, making explicit that which was implicit. So there is no (laughs) negotiating. There's no kind of uh, fogginess here when they were betrothed before they came together. No physical intimacy had taken place. Mary is 
unknown by a man. And yet she's found to be with child. And I love how Matthew chimes in with found to be not just with child. Because I imagine throughout human history there have been a multitude of young ladies who have found themselves with child and have still claimed a similar thing. I don't know. Don't know how I got pregnant. I know how you got pregnant. Matthew highlights it and explains, no, this child, it's not Joseph's child. This is not a young woman who's lying, who's trying to cover a mistake that her body has betrayed her for. No, instead, this is a child that is conceived by God himself. The Holy Spirit has overshadowed her womb and given child to this young lady. Most likely a teenager. Probably most, most likely younger than we would be comfortable with, honestly. And in doing so, highlights for us all that uh, the kind of foundational understanding of how Christ comes into the world of he arrives from the womb of a virgin. And historically, well, okay, I mean, cool, neat and all. I mean, the liberals have said, well, that obviously isn't, and I don't mean political liberals, I mean theological liberals, those that say the Bible is not 100% trustworthy and true. Uh, They would say, well, obviously that can't be true because that's not how children are made. I think the reason why uh, so often in church history there's been argument over this is because the significance of what this means for who Jesus is. His his unique conception, the unique fashion in which he was made is significant because of how sin is transmitted. Sin is transmitted not through DNA. That would be very weird. Uh, Somehow some sort of genetic modification we could get rid of sin. I, I only wish right now. No, sin is transmitted through through the presidency, through the reign of a king. In the same way that I've used the illustration here is the President of the United States. If the President of the United States were ever to legally declare war against Canada, I would think that would be a foolish thing. But guess what? I would be at war with Canada, whether I liked it or not. He functions as the head of the government, and where he goes, we go. Perhaps a better illustration would have been an old monarchy. If the king declared war against someone, well, you went to war whether you liked it or not. The issue is, is back in the garden, Adam declared war against God in easily the worst mistake in human history. Adam declares war against God and everybody that proceeds from Adam goes to war with him. That means that every single child, save Christ, since Adam and Eve... Upon conception, fertilization in the womb is already at war with God. Even before they've had any opportunity to act upon that war, even before they've had opportunity to be participants or to be casualties from the very moment that they become human, become made, they're at war with God. And this is why the devil has fought against the doctrine of the virgin birth so much is because Jesus Christ was not born at war with God. 
by not having a physical father, he was not born under the presidency of Adam. He's born in his own little kingdom. It's its, its own separate kingdom of its own rule. Turns out he'll be the king. There's this reason that we can say every child that's born is in need of salvation, save Christ, because he wasn't born under that presidency of Adam. He wasn't born with that sin condition. He was born unstained. You see, this is the unfortunate reality is that for every other child apart from Christ, even if they themselves never sin, they go to hell because they have Adam's son. Original sin. Their very nature is broken. Christ, on the other hand, is something completely unique inside creation up to this point. A child that shows up not under the presidency, the headship of Adam, not showing up with the sinful condition, not showing up with original sin or flawed nature, instead showing up in perfection. He's unstained. He's perfect. This is why those that do not believe the Bible hate the virgin birth so much. Because the devil knows. The devil knows. When we lose belief in the virgin birth, eventually we lose belief in the uniqueness and the perfection of Christ Jesus. The story doesn't stop there. I think this next part has been the part that has hit me the most this time studying this. Again, a passage I've read a number of times. Verse 19. Her husband Joseph, again notice he's called husband even though they've not been intimate. Her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. That is understatement of the week. Because, see, what happens here, (laughs) a little bit more significant than today where um, all sorts of behaviors are tolerated and endorsed in today's society. Uh, Back when this was uh, being written, uh, the Torah, Old Testament law, was still even held in places. And uh, Old Testament law demanded that adultery was punished by death. So Joseph's actually presented with a very challenging situation. His young wife-to-be is pregnant. The child is obviously not his because he knows enough how babies are made to know that he hasn't participated. So now what does he do? If he keeps her around, everyone knows the child's probably his and they were probably a, a bit eager which would have been a source of tremendous shame for them and their family. At which point he would have to take another man's child, claim it as his own, and pretend. Or take her to court 
Now, we get the impression here that he, he's been informed uh, that she's pregnant. We have a guess from this. Probably he's been informed enough to know that it was not like, um, it probably wasn't rape or anything of that sort because there would have been different legal options there. Uh, but then he's weighing again of what do I do because he could properly and biblically take her to court. To sue for divorce, which very likely could have either ended up somewhere in between two ends of the spectrum of either her execution, not likely in this time, but more likely her public shame and poverty forever. Nobody's going to remarry her. She would have been an outcast left with that child having to figure out how to find food and shelter and water and probably starving her entire life. And he's kind of mulling it over, contemplating, what do I do? Finally resolving to take the most tender and merciful, and I'm going to suggest holy path presented to him. To divorce her quietly. To minimize her shame, to minimize her risk but at the same time giving her what would hopefully be a future and the possibility of a life to come, but not with him. I think we overlooked this fact. Jesus is born into a, what we would probably call right now a broken home. I mean, mom and dad are about to get divorced while he's in utero. I wouldn't call that necessarily a happy home at the time. I've been thinking about it all week and just kind of stewing. I don't know why it just struck my brain so strongly this time that you know, the, the Lord Jesus grew up with a stepfather that loved him terribly. And to think about it, like, man, was it five years ago, less than 46% of children raised in America are raised with mom and dad or they're in their first marriage. And it's more than 55% of kids raised in America today are raised with mom and dad either not married cohabiting or second marriages or things like that. More than 10% of kids in America right now uh, throughout their life will watch mom and dad go through at least three partners in the home. I was contemplating, like, man, you know, how sweet that is to think that Jesus, even in, in the arrival into a family, <laughs> he's, he's not stepping into the perfect condition, so to speak. And to think that Jesus knows what it's like to have a stepdad who loves him and to have to interact with him and respect him and obey him. Because his dad's not there. He steps into what I would think at this time would probably have been a fairly unique family situation. I mean, one, the whole virgin birth thing, that would have been the only time in human history it happens, really. Uh, but two... Their family would have been the talk of the town because of how unbelievably strange this is at this time in history. Probably a bit less strange today. And to think of what it's doing is paving the way for Christ and his ministry. I love this. So that when uh, later in the scriptures it says that he is able to relate to our every struggle. My goodness, certainly he can. Growing up in a home that we would lovingly say was perhaps a bit complicated. 
It sets him up for this perfect understanding of being the mediator. And again, you can see why in early church history, the the heretics tried to get rid of his humanity to say that Jesus wasn't a, a human in the way that I am and say, no, look, Matthew's even explaining it, that he's so human that he arrives in a family that's even in a little bit of turmoil. And boy, the pregnancy has already been extremely complicated. Now he's human and so human that the life around him was messy so that as the world was stained and corrupted around him, he is and was and always will be perfect. But even more, he's able to be my mediator. To be my go-between, to be my representative because he understands. He knows Joseph here in verse 19, we find out is, I think, a tremendously holy man. Much talk is made of Mary and rightfully so. She is a a marvelous woman. I look forward to meeting her in glory. Her faith is spectacular. Uh, It should not, however, be neglected to mention that Joseph is pretty marvelous in his own right. One, not going nuclear on his bride-to-be. I mean, I imagine in many cases uh, that could have been a, a fairly unpleasant or even violent confrontation. Instead, he goes and quietly considers what to do and chooses the path that is the most tender and loving toward the woman that he is to marry. But the Lord intervenes, verse 20, but as he considered these things, behold, in a dream... An angel of God, an angel of the Lord appeared to him. And I don't know what that looked like, but I can tell you it was not the little naked baby with wings and adorable cherub with the chubby little cheeks that you want to pinch. This is every other situation we see the angel showing up. They're absolutely wholly terrifying. Interestingly, this is one of the few times it's noted that the person who interacted with the angel isn't immediately noted that they were terrified. Interestingly. The angel appears to him in a dream. Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. Interesting, what's the issue of fear there? It's not fear of the angel. It's fear of taking Mary. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid of the child that's in her womb. Don't be afraid of, you have to think about his reputation. Don't be afraid of, again, it's a small town. Most people in a small town can count to nine. They can figure out when baby was made. They can figure out who was doing what. And there is in small town easy ways to punish people with shame throughout their lives. Don't be afraid of the consequences, Joseph. Don't be afraid of what will follow. Take this woman as your wife, for it's not another man's child. It's God's child. I love that what's happening here for Joseph <laughs> is you ever, now, again, some of you are in the right age bracket for this. Some of you maybe, I guess not. But you get those postcards in the mail that have like the really adorable picture on it. Now, I guess it's on social media uh, announcing how the young couples, you know, they're, they're going to have a baby. You know, whether it's a, an extra set of shoes on the hearth or, you know, with the baby bump or whatever it is. Perhaps it's the picture of the sonogram of, yay, 
it's the, the baby announcement. We're so excited. There's a baby coming. Joseph gets his baby announcement for his wife like this. And again, Matthew is calling to the reader's attention to say, look, this is a different sort of child. Rather than an Instagram post or picture on Twitter, this child is announced by the angels. The glory of this child is so great, it's leaking out of heaven and it's leaking even into our dreams. Wow. A child that has a unique conception, a child that has a a unique family, and now has a unique birth announcement, an announcement that is filled with glory. Again, I, I I don't know what the angels look like. I do know Scripture tells us enough to know they're wholly terrifying and wholly beautiful. And creatures composed as best we can tell primarily of fire or something looks like it marvelous creatures and here in this vision in his mind as he sleeps no it's not another man's child it's the child of God verse 21 is an interesting verse as it explains kind of our next thing we're going to jump to, but it's also one of those uh, great parenting statements, right? Parenting statements are statements that it's just a statement, but it's actually really a command right? where a parent will look at their children and say, your room is not clean. What does that mean? Go clean your room, <clears throat> right? It's a statement of fact, your room is not clean, but in reality, it's actually a command. Go clean your room. Here is a statement of fact. She will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. That's a statement of fact. She's going to have a boy and you're going to name him this, but that's actually a command because we aren't Jewish and we don't think in this time. For Joseph to name that child is for Joseph to claim that child. What is being announced here is not just that Jesus is not another man's child, it's the child of God, but it's also to his stepfather to say, you are to adopt him and to raise him as your own. He is your heir. He is of your lineage. And this is why the genealogy becomes so important, where the genealogy explained how the king would be the son of Joseph. And now we find out why he's the son of Joseph. Because an angel told him to adopt him, to claim him as his own in a vision unique conception shows his, his unstained character. A unique family shows he's perfect as a mediator. This unique birth announcement shows his glory. And my favorite part, this child has given you a unique mission. Even as the angel speaks to him, he'll bear a son, you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. That's what Jesus means. He's a Savior. 
Matthew then gives commentary in verse 22 to help the reader understand, and again, primarily writing for the Jews. So what does he do? He proof texts it, as any good theologian does. You, you should never trust a theologian that just throws ideas out and can't ever back them up biblically. Here, Matthew shows that exact thing. Look, you want to know why he is Savior of God's people, how he's Savior of God's people? Let me prove it to you from the Old Testament. All of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet Isaiah chapter 7. This was the foreshadowing. This was the prophecy. The virgin shall conceive and bear a son. We have a virgin. She's pregnant with a boy, and they will call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And why would we call Jesus that? Well, because he is God, and he is with us. By that, we mean not simply just that he lived for a short time, 33 years. That's that's not what we mean when it says God with us. Because that would be very weird for me to call him God with us if if he's not with me. He only lived for 33 years. No, what it means is that God has stepped inside humanity. So that we now have in creation in this moment, we have a person who is both God and man at the exact same time. So I can say forever, God with us because Jesus is man and he is also God. And so I I have a representative. I have someone who understands. I have God who is not far, far, far away. I have God who is like me. He's human. Again, I think verse 24, one of those verses we've read a million times and probably brushed over. But when Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel commanded. (laughs) He did exactly what he was told to do. And in fact, actually, just for clarification, in case you were wondering, he knew her not. So no intimacy until after she had given birth to a son. And there are portions of the church and certainly the early church fathers that were terribly mistaken to say that they were then never intimate and tried to hold to some goofy understanding of the perpetual virginity of Mary, which is total nonsense. There's a reason why it's got the word until here. He did know his wife. That's where you get all the other sons and daughters from, but not until later, until after Jesus has arrived. I like how verse 24 kind of, it puts there though, is it, it, it showed that this understanding of who Jesus is demanded something from Joseph. It wasn't just one of those things where you could say, well, that's neat and all. Cool. I'm going to go eat my food now. But, you know, instead it it was a, look, this is who Jesus is. Now, Joseph, you need to go act on it. And I would humbly suggest that 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 reality is no less different for us. No less the same reality for us that if we are to understand who Christ is, he's perfect. He's arrived out of a, a unique story of conception. He's our mediator. He's the go-between. He's out of this human family, but the divine family. He's clothed in glory as we get to see in his birth announcement. He's the redeemer, the one who has accomplished salvation for our sins. The implied command is, therefore, go love him and serve him.
And I would just humbly suggest that I, my, my concern always for us is this, that we hear these truths and say, well, on a scale of 1 to 10, these are all 10 out of 10 kind of glorious truths. And then my response is a 2 out of 10. That's, that's honestly, that's my concern as a pastor is that uh, we as God's people will say, look, we believe Jesus is this great and mighty God. And then my response is just this kind of little sort of answer. And this is where I started with perhaps it is because we have actually not listened to the text. That it's become so familiar with us and in us that we've just kind of put it away and stored it in the back of our minds. And now we're actually, we wouldn't even say it this way, but we're being a bit intellectually dishonest. Because we say we believe who this Jesus is, the God-man who has redeemed me and demands all of my life, but then I'm not willing to give it. And may it be that even today, the Lord would open our eyes just a little bit more clearly and the Spirit would soften our heart just a bit more softly that we might humbly by God's power, bow the knee a little more and submit to this, the King of kings and the Lord of glory, Emmanuel, God with us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We confess that we are, (laughs) oh, we are so quick to forget. And we are amazing creatures at justifying our own desires. Forgive us for the sneaky ways that we want to make ourselves king or queen and stop listening to Christ. Would you please forgive us and turn our hearts to you yet again? We pray for Christ's sake. Amen.